We apologise for the poor sound quality during the following sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This was due to a deterioration of the original recording, and although it's been digitally restored to improve audibility, we trust that it will not spoil your enjoyment of this sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, the fifth chapter, and uh, verses 24, 25, and 26. Verses 24, 25, and 26. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that hath sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. I really want to call attention to the 24th verse because the 25th and 26th verses are really nothing but elaborations and explanations of everything that is contained in the 24th verse. Let me therefore read it again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. We continue our consideration of this uh, mighty paragraph, this tremendous statement, which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ made, you remember, to the Jews who had discovered that it was he who had healed that man who had spent 38 years there at the pool of Bethesda, hoping that some day or another he might be healed by the pool. Our Lord healed the man, and it happened to be a Sunday. And that, you remember, led these Jews to criticize and to express their horror, to regard our Lord as someone who was breaking the commandment of God and going contrary to the will of God. And our Lord, you remember, answered, and his answer, which we've been considering, has been this mighty exposition as to who he is, his nature, his being, that his will is one with God's, that all he does he is doing with God, that he's one with God in essence. They're right when they say that he is indeed equal to God, that is precisely what he claimed. Well, now here he is, making this tremendous statement, and in this verse we're looking at this evening, he continues that statement. You notice that he introduces it with this formula, this particular formula that we find here and there in this gospel according to St. John. Verily, verily. If you like, truly, truly. Now, whenever our Lord uses these words and introduces a statement by means of them, we must always take it that he is speaking with unusual emphasis and solemnity. Everything he said is important. His every word is absolutely vital. And yet he himself draws this kind of distinction between his various statements. And therefore, whenever we find him introducing a statement by of verily, verily, we should pay unusual attention. He's calling upon us to do so. Because what he's saying at such a time is something that is of momentous significance and importance to us. Well, now, that is how he introduces this statement that we are going to look at this evening. What does he say here? What is it that he invites us to consider with such carefulness, with such unusual carefulness? 
Well, let me hurry straight into it without any further preamble or introduction. The first thing he tells us is this, that the most important thing that any one of us ever does in this world of time is to listen to the gospel. That's his first statement. That what you and I are doing here this evening is the most important thing that we ever do throughout the entire course of our life in this world. There is nothing, he says, which is comparable to this. Why? Well, for this reason. You notice that his whole statement can be put like this. That it is the way in which we listen to this word, this gospel, is the thing that determines our eternal destiny. Our Lord was constantly saying that, you remember he puts it like this sometimes, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Another time he puts it still more bluntly and says, take heed how ye hear. But here he puts it in a more general way. His contention is, that our hearing of this word, our response, our reaction to it, is literally going to determine our everlasting and eternal destiny. Now, that is why I say that the most important thing we ever do in life in this world is the very thing that we are doing here this evening. Ah, we sit and listen to statesmen. Very rightly so. What they are going to say may make a great deal of difference to us. What they've got to say about the income tax, what they've got to say about hours of working, about trading conditions, relationships with other countries. Of course we should listen. It affects us very vitally. And if the storms of war, the clouds begin to gather, why, we don't miss the news, do we? We say, now then, it's coming up to nine o'clock, we must listen. Is it going to be war? Of course, it's momentous. But you know all that they've got to say at its highest and at its best and at its most important is only something that affects us while we're in this world and in this life. What our Lord says about this word of his is that it affects us not only in time but in eternity. That everlastingly we shall reap the consequences of the way in which we listen to this particular word. Now then, I therefore argue that this is the most important thing that we can ever do. The very thing we are doing this evening. And if you'll allow me to say so, I am preaching and speaking to you with a sense, therefore, of the responsibility of my position that I should in no way come between you and this mighty word which has such dread, such tremendous possible consequences for everybody who listens to it. And so, I make no apology at this preliminary stage in this service in putting this question to you. How has this word come to you? You've heard it many times, haven't you? You've listened to this word. Tell me, how has it come to you? What effect has it had upon you? Have you realized its momentous character? Where does this word come into your life exactly? Where does it count in your esteem? What part does it play in your philosophy and in your view of life? I'm entitled to ask the questions in the light of what our Lord himself says about the word. Here, his case is that if we listen to this word as we should, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that hath sent me, hath everlasting life. He's got indescribable glory coming to him. But he that doesn't do so will remain to all eternity outside the life of God and outside that glory. He's already said at the end of the third chapter of this gospel, the wrath of God abideth on him. Now then, my friends, is there anything more important then than that we should be able to answer this question? How are we to listen to this word? If it is so important and has such tremendous consequences, 
How should we really listen to it? Well, isn't it clear that uh, we must start with a negative and say this. That hearing this word in the sense that he uses is not just a matter of listening to a sermon. It includes that, of course, but it isn't only that. Because we know all of us, do we not, from experience, that we can listen to sermons and remain exactly what we were. We can go throughout a long life and listen to sermons and they have no effect at all upon us. Mere listening, mere physical presence in the house of God, mere awareness that something's being said that isn't hearing. Neither is it merely enjoying a sermon. We may enjoy a sermon, or we may not, but even if we do, it isn't of necessity hearing. There have been men who've enjoyed sermons throughout their lives, but they've never become Christians. They were enjoying something about the way of delivery, perhaps the thought, the intellectual apprehension. They liked a kind of philosophy. It's never done anything to them. They've remained exactly where they were. Enjoyment isn't enough. Indeed, it isn't enough that we should hear in such a way as to have a kind of intellectual apprehension and understanding of the truth. I'm never tired of repeating this. There are men, you know, who know the whole argument, as it were, of the Bible, and yet who've never been affected by it. That's a terrible thing, but it's, it's a possibility. You can come to this with your mind only and give an intellectual assent, and it makes no difference. That isn't hearing. That isn't the hearing that our Lord speaks about. That isn't what he means by hearing my words and believing on him that hath sent me. Well, then what does it believe? Well, let me put it like this. I read to you that section just now from the 16th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles because there I think we have a very good practical illustration of what it does mean. What hearing this word really means. Do you notice what we are told about that woman Lydia? There she was in the prayer meeting which the Apostle Paul went to address outside the city walls of Philippi on that famous Sunday afternoon. He sat down amongst them and he spake unto them the word of the Lord. And this is what we were told. This woman Lydia, a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. That's it. Attended unto the things. She wasn't sitting in the, on that occasion as a kind of detached spectator. She wasn't looking on, as it were, and just hearing words and perhaps uh, being interested in this uh, new presentation of truth which she'd never heard before. No, no, she attended. She was gripped, her whole personality was directed and focused and concentrated upon it. She attended unto the word. Have you ever listened like that, I wonder? You know, there's all the difference in the world between a passive and an active listening. Passive listening, you sit back in your seat and you're looking on and you're estimating and you're thinking and you're expressing and forming opinions to yourself. Passive listening, that's not attending. That's not really hearing the word. No, no, the one who attends, who hears, is all, I say, possessed and directed as a whole upon the message and upon the truth. That's the beginning of it. But it doesn't stop at this. It means this, you see, in addition. Hearing this word means really understanding what it says. realizing the significance of what it is stating and what it implies and what it involves. Ah, says our Lord, I'm speaking to you, but are you hearing me? You see, he draws these distinctions so frequently. He draws a, a distinction between seeing and perceiving. You can look at a painting, you see, and you see nothing but dabs of paint, as it were. Ah, but a man who's got an artistic eye, he sees the mind of the artist, seeing and perceiving. Now, it's exactly the same with hearing. You can hear, as it were, mechanically, but that doesn't lead to anything. Oh, the man who really hears the word suddenly awakens to its reality, its significance, its meaning, its import, its implication. And, of course, what follows from that is this. He surrenders to it. 
He says this is the one thing that matters. This is the one thing that counts. He hears the word in such a way as to say, well, I forget everything else. He's controlled by it. He's governed by it. He says I must obey it. He gives himself to it. His whole life henceforth is dominated by this. He is mastered by the word which he has heard. That's it. That's what our Lord means by hearing my word and believing on him that sent me. So we can test ourselves very simply by, the, by this test. Is this word controlling and dominating our thought and our life? Is your life built on this foundation? We've all got a scheme, a philosophy of life. We've all got our ideas about life and about living and everything else. I'm simply asking a simple question. Everybody knows the answer. Is your whole outlook based upon this or isn't it? It's one or the other. And if you've really heard this word and believed it, this is everything to you and your whole life is upon this foundation. But someone may say to me, why should we so hear this word? Why are you speaking like this to us? Why are you asking for that word which you are preaching, something which no statesman or politician or philosopher nor poet nor sociologist or anybody else would dare to ask from a company of people? Why? Well, I'll give you the answers that were given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in this one verse. These are the answers, the reasons that he gives for our hearing and believing this word in this particular way and manner. We are to attend to it in this way as Lydia did because of what it tells us about ourselves. Did you notice it? Listen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that hath sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. Have you realized what this word tells you about yourself? Well, let me put it before you simply and briefly. This word tells us two things about ourselves, doesn't it? And here they are. The first is that we are dead. Hearing this word truly means that we pass from death where we were unto life. So we were in death, dead. My dear friend, this is the first matter, surely, about which we should all be perfectly clear. that by nature every one of us is spiritually dead. You remember how the Apostle Paul puts that? You were he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Did you know that you were spiritually dead? This word tells you in the first instance that you are. What does it mean to be spiritually dead, says someone? Well, I'll tell you very simply. The man who is spiritually dead is a man who doesn't realize that he's got an immortal soul within him. Never thinks about it. Not interested in it. And when he's told about it, doesn't know what one's talking about. That's to be spiritually dead. Thinks of himself as just a sort of animal, a reasoning animal perhaps. Eating, drinking, enjoying himself and a certain amount of intellectual interests. But you begin to tell him, look, yeah, more than that, there's that within you which is meant for God. There's something within you that's bigger than the world, your soul. Christ said, what shall it profit a man though he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What are you talking about, says this man? What is the soul? 
The late Sir Arthur Keith said that having dissected so many bodies throughout so many years, he never came across an organ which he could call the soul. What do you mean? And by saying that, he pronounces that he's spiritually dead. He is not aware of the life of the spirit within him. Not interested, not concerned. Not only that, he is completely dead to the life of God. Oh, what? Heard the word God, argued about it, swears, curses, uses it. It's a good expletive. But he's never thought about God. He's never sat down and tried to think about God and his relationship to God. All that, he says, is just rubbish and nonsense and the practical men of affairs. If you were talking about that problem they have in South Africa, you'd have something to talk about. But you're always talking about God. I'm a practical man. Why don't you stand there and protest against the bombs every Sunday night? Why don't you protest against this and that? But God, what's God? We are living in this world. Why not talk to us about something we understand? That's his talk, you see. He's spiritually dead. The maker of the universe doesn't enter into his thinking. He has no sense of the unseen. He has no consciousness of life beyond the veil, the life of the spirit. He's spiritually dead. And these things mean nothing to him and are a bore to him and are an irritation to him. There he is. Why is he like that? Well, because I say he has no life in him. He is spiritually dead. Dead in trespasses and in sins. Nothing responding to the greatest and the most glorious things of all, even to God himself. This word tells us that we're all by nature spiritually dead. With no interest in these things. Impassive as far as they're concerned. Well, my friend, you examine yourself. This is the thing we've all got to do face to face with this word. Uh, does it come to you with truth, with vigor, with power? Do you realize it's the truth about yourself? What does this word mean to you? Are you concerned about your soul? Do you ever sit down and ponder your eternal destiny? Do you sometimes say to yourself, why doesn't God mean more to me? Why doesn't he mean to me what he's meant to the saints of the centuries? Why doesn't he mean to me what he, what he was to this Jesus of Nazareth? What is it? Have you ever been disturbed? Have you ever been unhappy? Have you ever said, why don't I pray? I hear a people pray. I hear a people deriving great comfort, having answers to their prayers. I don't know what they mean. I try to, but I cannot. Aren't you disturbed about that? You should be. It means you're spiritually dead. Death. But let me hurry to the second thing it tells us about ourselves. It tells us not only that we are dead, but that partly because we are dead, we are also under condemnation. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Well, the obverse is this, isn't it? That if he doesn't hear the word and believe, he will come into condemnation. Indeed, he's already in condemnation because he says of this man that he has passed from death unto life. But if he hasn't heard like that, he remains in death and that is to remain under condemnation. There is no theme which is more solemn than this. People say, preach to us about the love of God, my dear friend, I will. But I can't hope to show you what the love of God is unless I can show you first that you're a condemned sinner. It's only the condemned sinner who knows what the love of God is. What the others talk about as love is a flabby sentimentality of their own imagination, which has nothing to do with God at all. Listen, this is the message of this word from beginning to end. A message which pronounces condemnation upon us and tells us that we are under condemnation. Listen to it. The first preacher that appears before us in the New Testament is John the Baptist. What did he preach about? This was his message. He exhorted men and women to flee from the wrath to come. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
And when he went one day, he saw a great crowd, and amongst them the Pharisees and the doctors of the Lord come out of Jerusalem to see this strange new religious phenomenon, looking on, judging. And he looked at them and said, Who had warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who is the second preacher? It's none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What did he preach? Exactly the same thing. Precisely the same message. He who knew more about love than any man can ever know or will know. He who is the very incarnation of the love of God. He used the same language. Flee from the wrath to come. The wrath of God, he says, abideth on him if he doesn't believe. It's full. It's there everywhere in all his sermons. And then go on to the preaching of the early church, which you'll find described in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And listen to a man like the Apostle Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching. What did he preach? This is what he said. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And you see, he preached in the power of the Spirit. And the word in the power of the Spirit had this effect upon the people. They interrupted the sermon, you remember, crying out and saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They've become desperate. They've seen the condemnation. That's how Peter preached. Oh, and go on and read about the preaching of the Apostle Paul and you'll find he said exactly the same thing. He said, God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the whole world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed, whereof he hath given assurance in that he hath raised him from the dead. Go and read his first chapter of his first epistle to the Thessalonians and he will describe Jesus Christ as the one who saves us from the wrath to come. Judgment, condemnation. He says the whole world lieth guilty before God. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's his message. It isn't confined to Peter. It isn't confined to Paul. It's everywhere. James has it. Read the last chapter of the epistle of James. And this is what you'll find. He says, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The judge standeth at the door. Don't you be too troubled, he says to those poor slaves. Don't you be too troubled at the injustices you're receiving. And then he looks at the masters who were oppressing them and he says, You be careful. The one who's judging you is coming. The harvest is about to be reaped. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And as for John, why it's in his first epistles, as it is in his gospel, it's in the book of Revelation. He exhorts those first Christians to live a good life because he says it's the only way to have boldness in the day of judgment. And what's the whole of the book of Revelation about? If it isn't about judgment. If it isn't about the coming of this one riding on the clouds of heaven upon his white horse with a sword in his mouth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, coming in final judgment upon the world. The second thing this word of Christ tells us about ourselves is that we are all under condemnation. Have you realized that? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Have you ever realized that while you're living your life in this world in the way that you think is right and best, that the whole time the law of God is there upon you and facing you, you know as well as I do that the ignorance, that ignorance of the law is no plea in a law court in this country, well, still less is it in the everlasting court. The law has been given. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's in the moral law of God. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the lives of the saints. It's in the life of Christ. You're left without any excuse. And as I've often pointed out before from this pulpit, what God demands of every one of us is not just that we should be good, decent, nice fellows. 
that he asks of us is that we should love him with all our hearts and souls and mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves and have you done it? And if you haven't, you've broken the law and you're guilty before God and you've come short of the glory of God and the wrath of God is upon you, whether you like it or not. This is the word and this is what it says. Has this word ever come to you like that, my friend? Have you heard it? Did you see how desperate that Philippian jailer became? Sirs, he says, what must I do to be saved? That's what they're all saying. That's what they're all crying out. That is the message when it comes and when one hears it, one realizes that one has got to face God. Have you ever stopped to think of this? You're immersed in the present world and its wonderful affairs. And you say, I'm so busy, I have no time to think. Fool, make time to think, ere it be too late with you. Isn't it sheer madness that we don't make time to think? You haven't time to think, you say. Well, believe me, when you're suddenly stricken with one of these terrible virus diseases, you may start thinking, but it may be too late. When you're there between life and death, you'll begin to ask the question, where am I going? What is there beyond this world? You've never thought that before. And you'll begin to realize you don't know. And then the word will come to you that you're going to face God. And you don't know him and you've disobeyed him all your life. And you've lived your own selfish, petty, narrow little life. And you have no claim upon his love. You're under condemnation. That is what this word tells us about ourselves. That we are dead. And that we are under condemnation. Under the wrath of God. As Paul puts it, we are all by nature the children of wrath. Even as others. But that's only the first thing this word tells us. Having told us the truth about ourselves, he goes on to tell us the truth about himself. I needn't keep you with this this evening. We've been spending the last two or three Sunday nights about it. Let me summarize it by just giving you headings in these words. The first thing he tells us is as to who he is. Why should we listen to these words? Why should we hear them? Why should we hang upon them? And as Lydia did, attend unto them. Well, it's because of the speaker. Who is he? My words, he says. Listen to my words. Hear my words. Who is this who arrogates such importance to himself? I've already answered that question. This is the Son of God. This is no mere man, mere carpenter of Nazareth. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed of God. The one to whom the Holy Spirit is not given by measure. He is the everlasting and eternal word that was in the beginning with God and that is God. My friends, I'm not reporting to you this evening the speculations of philosophers. I'm telling you what God, the second person, the Son, says and said when he was in this world and still says. I am but the mouthpiece of ice. For the Son of God who utters the words. That's why the words are important. You remember what he's been saying? He's been saying that his will is the Father's will. That they're one in essence, one in plan, one in everything. That there is no difference in quality. That he's co-equal and co-eternal. He's the second person of the blessed Holy Trinity. I mustn't stay with this. We've dealt with it. I shall deal with it again. But I do ask you, do you realize this? That in all your problems and perplexities and difficulties in this world, do you realize that you have the advantage of hearing what the Son of God says about it all? Have you listened because it's He who is speaking? But there's a second thing He tells us about Himself. And that is that God has sent him into the world to do something. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that hath sent me. Blessed word. 
God has sent him into the world. Why? Well, here's the answer he's already given it in speaking to Nicodemus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he says it here. I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. He's come to save. He's come to deliver. He's carrying out the plan of God purposed in eternity, planned by the blessed Holy Trinity. He's been sent and he's come in order to do it. In order to do what? To save you and me from the condemnation, from our sins, from our alarming situation. The Son of Man, he says, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to taste death for every man. He came not merely to teach and give an example. He came to go to the cross and to take in his own holy body on the tree your sins and mine. That's why he came. The Father has sent me. He's a deliverer, a mediator, a messiah. He's the emancipator. I've been sent, he says, and I've been sent to do something that none other could do. Otherwise, I would never have come. That's what he says about himself. But come, let me tell you what he says in the third place. About the salvation that he has come to give us and to bring us. The salvation that is offered to you this evening as I preach from this pulpit. Have you realized what this Son of God came into the world in order to give to you and to give to me and to all who hear him and believe on him? Well, let me tell you. The first thing you notice, he says, is this. That there is no condemnation to those who believe. He says, he that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. What does this mean? Well, you may have heard the word justification. The great word of Paul's epistle. Do you know what it means? As you've read the Bible and you've come across justification and justified have you known what it means? Let me tell you. This is what it does mean. It means that the man who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ has all his sins forgiven, blotted out, pardoned completely. It not only means that. It means that God declares him to be righteous in his sight. God, the judge eternal, pronounces this man to be absolutely righteous. How can he do that, you say? He's only forgiven his sins, but the man's nature is evil. I'll tell you. The man hasn't kept the law, you say. I'll tell you. He gives him, he puts upon him, he clothes him with the righteousness of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father hath sent me, says our Lord here, and this is what he sent him to do. He made him take on him human nature that he should represent us. And there he came under the law. And the first thing he has to do is to keep that law of God inviolate. Honor it in every respect. Not a yacht a yacht or a tittle should be broken. Honor the law, absolutely. And he did it. And then our sins, we've broken the law, we've transgressed it, and the law says you must be punished. He took all that on himself, and he's borne the punishment. The law is fully satisfied. And what justification means is this, that God takes his righteousness, his perfect life, and puts it to our account, puts it to us, reckons it to us, imputes it to us. So that it means this, you see, that all the sins we've ever committed are blotted out and forgiven and pardoned. And God now puts this righteousness upon us. And therefore when we go before him, he doesn't see us. He sees Christ. That's what Count Zinzendorf meant in that hymn that John Wesley translated. Jesus, thy robe of righteousness, my beauty is my glorious dress. 
This life of Christ that is imputed to him, this righteousness of Christ that now become, becomes his. Shall I put it as simply as this to you? If you have this salvation that comes to all who believe Christ's word and who truly hear it, it means that God looks at you as if you'd never sinned at all. Do you believe that? He sees you righteous in Christ as if you'd never committed a sin, as if you were perfect in his sight. The righteousness of Christ, he puts it on you. That's justification. That is what he means here by saying that he shall not come into condemnation. Listen to the Apostle Paul putting it in a mighty statement in the first verse of the 8th chapter of his epistle to the Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What is the next thing that this salvation gives us? Well, it's new life. Hath everlasting life. The thing we lacked, you see. That deadness. He gives us life. He puts a new principle of life into us. It's a part of the life of Christ. We are made partakers of the divine nature. We don't understand it, but we are born again. The thing that Nicodemus can't underst couldn't understand and that we can't understand happens to us. The wind bloweth where it listeth. We are born again. We find ourselves new men. We've got a new outlook, a new understanding, new desires, new hopes. We hate the sins we formerly loved. We desire to be holy. We begin to enjoy these things. New life hath everlasting life. It gives us that. The condemnation is removed and we are given this new start, this new beginning, this new life. That's what he says. And then the next thing, of course, is this, that as we look to the future... We have nothing at all to fear. Not even death. Not even the grave. Not even the bar of judgment. Why? Well, we've passed from death into life. We're already judged. God has pronounced us free. Once and forever. And we have nothing to fear. So that we say with Augustus' top lady, the terrors of law and of God, with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. That's the next thing this great salvation gives us. Then you may very well ask this question. Uh, how then am I to have it all? And he's already told you. You have nothing to do but to hear his words and to believe on him that sent him. You have nothing to do but to believe what I've been putting to you. That he is the son of God. That he came into this world in order to do that for you. That he's come because you were lost and damned and hopeless. But that he's honored God's law for you. That he's borne your punishment. And that he, his perfection, his righteousness will be given to you. You just believe it and no more. And then you ask a final question with which I close. When can I have all this? I imagine I hear someone saying that. I imagine someone saying, you know, I'd never realized all these things. I'd never seen myself as dead. I'd never realized I was under condemnation. I'd never faced the fact of death. I'd never realized who Jesus was. I'd never realized that this was such a marvelous salvation. But now I see it. And I want to know, when can I have it? And you know the answer? You can have it now. Listen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my words and believeth on him that hath sent me hath, has now everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed, has already passed from death unto life. You know this is in many ways the most important thing of all. I've been trying to test you from the very moment I began to speak. 
as to whether you had ever really heard this word. Now, I'm really going to bring out my final test. And it's an absolute one, and it's absolutely certain. You can know exactly whether you're a Christian or not in this building at this moment. This is how you do it. Do you know and believe that this is a salvation that you can have now? Or are you still thinking of it as a program? Do you still say, ah, I, I, I'm impressed. Now I'm going out and back into the world. I'm going to be a better man, a better woman. I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to give a bit of my time to doing good. I'm going to give a tenth of my goods to help people who are in suffering. I've been very selfish. Now I'm really going to live a better life. And then I believe that I can become a Christian and I can ask God to forgive me. If that's what you're saying, I've spoken in vain. You haven't heard my words. You haven't heard the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a program. This is not dependent on anything in us, anything we do, anything we ever can do. It has nothing to do with us in that sense. It is entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the free gift of God's grace. And because it is something that he is, has done for us, and something that is given to us as a free gift, we can accept it now. You can accept it as easily now as in a thousand years' time. As it's a free gift entirely given by him and in the entire giving of himself. What better are you going to be if you live a good life for a thousand years? You've still got to receive the gift. So if it's a question of receiving a gift, what are you waiting for? You can take it now as well as in a thousand years. And if you don't see that, you haven't seen it at all. Let not conscience make you linger, or of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to see your need of him. Haven't you understood justification? Haven't you understood that it's a declaration of God? Haven't you understood that all your sins were put upon Christ? And he has borne their punishment and has taken them away. Haven't you seen that his life is given to you? It isn't a life you create. It's his life which you receive. If you don't see that you can have it now just as you are, as well as I say in a thousand years, you haven't heard it. God, says Paul to the Romans in the fourth chapter, justifies the ungodly. It was while we were yet without strength. In due time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Yea, while we were enemies, there it is, as you are, black as you are, vile as you are, just as you are, without one plea. If you don't see that you can have it now, perfectly and completely and entirely, you haven't seen it at all. If you want time to do anything about yourself or your life or your works or your feelings or anything you may like to mention, you haven't seen it. Because you don't come in at all in any respect. It's an entire free gift, a perfect gift. He's made a full atonement, and it's a perfect atonement, and his righteousness is perfect. The robe of his righteousness hasn't a seam in it. He doesn't need a stitch from you, nor a stitch from me. It's entirely the grace of God. And if you don't see that you have everlasting life here and now, you really haven't heard his word and believed on him who hath sent him. Very well, I leave you by just asking you the question in this form. Can you really do what John Newton did in the hymn that we were singing just now? Be thou, he says to Jesus Christ, be thou my shield and hiding place that Sheltered by thy side, I can my fierce accuser face and tell him 
Thou hast died. You remember that his hymn was about prayer. Approach my soul, the mercy seat. And haven't you had the experience? You go there and your sins are resurrected up against you. All the sins, the vile, foul things you've ever done, the devil raises them up and accuses you, and you feel you can't pray, and you have no right to pray, that you're a terrible person in even attempting to go into the presence of God. He hurls them at you. Tell me, can you withstand him with John Newton, and say to him, I can my fierce accuser face, and tell him, Thou hast died. Can you silence the devil when he comes to you and thus accuses you and tries to stop your praying? Do you tell him, look here, I'm not listening. You're a liar and the father of liars. Christ has died for me and in him I go to God. I go by his blood into the holiest of all. Can you do that? Are you doing it? If not, you've never heard him. You've never heard his word. Or can you put it in the words of Zinzendorf? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty, ah, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in disarray, with joy, shall I lift up my head. Can you see? Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully through thee, absolved I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Can you say that? Do you believe it? Do you feel it? Are you ready to stand in the great day? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, who shall bring anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, that is even at the right hand of God. Do you believe that? Can you say that? Do you know that you have everlasting life, that you shall not come into condemnation, that you have already passed from death unto life? Have you heard him? It's the Son of God telling you that, that he has died for you, and will clothe you with his own perfect righteousness. If you but believe his words and believe on him. Amen.